was an exciting t- time in Glasgow and, you know, I, I did all start with the postcard record label. That was the thing that was a big influence in us, the ba- Orange Juice in particular. Um, but, they, yeah, their whole um, uh, thing was that, we, yeah, um, that, you know, we can do this in Glasgow. We can make records here. We can stay based here. We can start a record label here. You know, we could do it all in the city. We don't have to go to London because before that, people would generally go to London because that's where the music business was. Uh, and I think um, post-punk, I, you know, it happened in cities all over the world, but certainly in the UK, the post-punk period was amazing. Things were happening in Manchester and in Leeds, you know, with the um, Gang of Four and all those bands. Uh, so it wasn't just all based in London. Things were popping up all over the country. Um and so in Glasgow, so it happened to be postcard records. Uh, and so that uh, was a big, big influence in all of these people that you're talking about, the Vaselines, Eugene from Vaselines and Francis and uh, and the Pastels and the BMX Bandits and all, uh, you know, whatever. So um, I guess, you know, like I say, they were saying, you can stay in the city, you can make great music and, you know, uh, and you can, yeah, there are clubs here, we can have a scene uh, and then we can take it from here and go out go out to other places with it. Um, and so that was really the start of all postcard records. Uh, from there came Primal Scream and Bell and Sebastian, or Sales to Jesus and Mary Chain. That, that was the springboard, really, for all of that music. Uh, and it was an exciting time, you know. Um, I think before that, I think I mentioned before, but I should probably say again, just in case that stuff's gone, that people in, in the past would tend to, make demos, send them to major record labels. The record label would write back and say, well, these songs are okay. Could you send us some more? Or you might want to try and do this or do that or whatever. And, you know, and, and we hated the idea of doing that. That was a, there was a big culture of that um, around the, the time when we started the band. So what we did was we thought that we would just make a record. We didn't have a lot of money, but we booked um, a day or two days in the studio in Glasgow, uh, and we, um, we recorded what would be the first um, Teenage Fan Club LP. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, that was done in a couple of days. I think we actually, we, we did it in two sessions, actually. We did this initial bit of recording, and then I gave the tapes of that to Stephen from the Pastels, who sent that on to his friend Gerard Cosloy, who was in the process of setting up Matador Records. He had been working at Homestead, and he wanted to set up his own label. And so he, him and Chris Lombardi set up Matador. And Stephen sent the tape to Gerard, and he liked it a lot, um, and said, look, we'd like to put that out as one of the first releases on Matador. I think, I think it's the second album on Matador. I think it's second or third. It's pretty early. So anyway, we sent that, that, that stuff off. Gerard loved it. Uh, and, uh, and then we went to Peter Hook's studio, Sweet 16 in Rochdale to do some further recording because by this point, Brendan O'Hare had joined the band and we there were a couple of tracks that we weren't entirely happy with and so we went down there and recorded some extra tracks and that became the first album. Uh, and I showed you a poster earlier, which obviously people are listening to this and can't see it, but it's a poster of the very first Matador event. Uh, and it was the event that launched the label. Um, and it was a, a show at CBGB, um, and but was our, that was actually our first show in the US. So it was pretty amazing. And the first time that we met, the night before we met Yola Tango, the first time we're, we're still good friends with them. Uh, we met Superchunk that night, who are our label now, uh, Merge Records. They were on the bill that evening, so it was quite a big uh, night for us. And in, in terms of our history, Urge Overkill, I thought was on there as Urge well. Urge Overkill were special guests. They weren't on Matador, but they were special guests. So, yeah, we met those guys that night too. So uh, it, it was amazing, actually, you know, and it was the first time that any of us had been to the US uh, and New York City. So uh, I, I don't, and what a place to play on your, on your first your first show, CBGB. And still was at the time, you know, by the time I got to New York, it was kind of a shell of its former self. But I, I'm assuming at that point, there was still mm. the punk part had long since moved on. But there was probably still some, you know, kind of Lower East Side energy. Yeah. Oh, there definitely was. It was pretty grimy down there at that time, you know. Um, I mean, I remember the, the one thing, I, one of the things that stuck in my mind about the, the uh, CBGB is the, the washroom downstairs, yeah. the, the men's washroom or whatever. They had yours, but there was like a toilet yeah. sitting in the kind of middle of the, uh, just in the middle of the room there. Okay. <laughs> you know, there was a stall, but somebody had ripped the door off of it. Yeah, that's right. That's what happened. So I think it had all gone, but that point it was just kind of exposed. 
I mean, it's funny because by the time I got there, it was probably 20 years after that and that they just hadn't, and they just opted not to fix the, the, the stall. That's the way it is. I think that, that was kind of the, the way that it went with CBG was just kind of gradually over the years just sort of deteriorated and, and until, of course, eventually it, it was gone. And it's amazing going down there now um, because it's, you know, it's unrecognizable. But that's what happens, you know, that's what happens in big cities. Um I think about London, and when I, we were going down there at first, Denmark Street is the really famous music street in London. All the music shops were there, and they're all gone now. There's nothing there. It's you know, it's um, and that was a big part. I, I, re, I used to be really excited about going, but um, uh, you know, about visiting. Really excited about visiting Denmark Street when we were in London because you know I, I would think this is where Pete Townsend bought his Rickenbacker, and you get to all these old stores. Um, Rod Argent had a store there. You know, it was amazing. But it's all gone now. So, you know, just happened. Gentrification and things change. You know, as you said, you were touring with the pastels, but it sounds like once you got it, it, you know, the group of you got it in your heads to start doing Teenage Fan Club, that things picked up pretty quickly. Yeah, they, they did. Um, I guess, you know, they, it was through circumstance, really, and good fortune. You know, uh, the fact that I knew Stephen and had toured with the pastels meant that he had, I, I, you know, he would be the first person that I gave the cassette of the album to and he knew Gerard uh, and he knew Calvin Johnson and so I met Calvin Johnson through that. Um, and so, and then he also, Stephen also passed the cassette on to a guy called Dave Barker in, in London who was starting a label called Paperhouse and Dave had put out the Pastels album up for a bit on his glass label. So it all came together pretty quickly for us. Stephen being a, a, um, a major factor in all of this happening. And then at that point, uh, we just started touring. We just, you know, uh, got in the back of a transit van they have over here. We, I think we just got the mattress off of my bed, chucked it in the back, and off we went. No windows. So if you were lucky, you got to ride up front with the driver. But if you were unlucky, <laughs> you, we all, you, you just had to lie on the mattress somewhere and close your eyes and wait till you got to the other side. A couple of hours later. <laughs> it's a really good way to, to figure out if you like a group of people. Well, yes, it certainly is. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, but it was, it was a lot of fun. And it was that, you know, we, I think a lot at that time, you know, I mentioned people would be looking for big record deals. And we weren't expecting to get, we didn't, we weren't looking for that. We weren't expecting anything like that. So we, we did it, you know, we, you know, uh, it did start, like I say, in the back of a van and we were just getting gigs left, right and center, wherever we could. We did a big European tour in the back of a van, but we played all sorts of crazy places. We played in a, I remember playing in a gas tank, you know, in, in Switzerland. So like one of those, something that would store gas, you know, uh, and the, um, the echo in there, the reverb in there was insane. Um, but we played all sorts of places. And, and, and actually in the US too, we did that. We did a little um, East Coast tour. Uh, went up to Boston and, uh, and Providence and, you know, played a load of little shows there. Uh, you know, it was all, uh, you know, and someone actually at that time, uh, uh, we someone who had worked at Homestead, a guy called Ken, I've forgotten Ken's second name, and he lent us uh, an old vehicle that he had. And I remember we picked it up in Manhattan and uh, we got to the vehicle with him and he um, he opened the trunk and he pulled out a couple of different plates and he said, I better change these. And he changed the plates on the, the car. And we're like, okay. Uh, and then I remember we got into it. It was a really nice old car. I don't know the model, but it was like a, a, an old Chevy or something like that. Uh, there was a big hole in the in the passenger side floor, so you could see the highway going, you know, literally going um, under your feet or whatever, you know. Um, and it was amazing. And it was one of those things where you know we show up, like I say, playing in tiny little bars. And at the end of the show, I would I would say invariably would say. Uh, is there anyone here that could put us up tonight? And always, there'd always be something like, yep, <laughs> you know, you can stay with us. And so we met some, some cool people doing that. People that were still friends with us, there's a guy called Eric Van Rysdom, uh, who's who's from Buffalo. And uh, we, uh, the first time we went to New York City, we stayed with him and his friend Peter, uh, Pete, another good friend of ours, and, and uh, you know, we still know them. So it's amazing, really. I think about this a lot, and it's funny that we were talking about CBGBs because, you know, again, I'm I'm in New York, and I moved out here to be a writer, and my first, like, probably most people, my first 
several years in the city. I was not making a lot of money, and I was living in, in, in really rough neighborhoods. And, and by a lot of measures, my life was kind of miserable. But I did at the time, I, I, to a certain degree, I, I, I did romanticize it, you know, being being a struggling writer. And certainly in hindsight, there are aspects of it that I I do remember quite fondly. And you kind of you kind of push those bad things out of your mind. And I'm wondering, you know, in this case, when you're, you know, in some of these sticky situations or you're driving in a car with a, a giant hole where you could see the road, if, if there was that sense of uh, that romance that, that was keeping you going. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're kind of fearless when you're young anyway, you know, you'll kind of go for, go for anything, you know? Um, but yeah, we'd kind of, well, we were big fans of Sonic Youth as well. And, and a lot of music that we liked was uh was you know um, music from the US, uh, and so and I I, I I guess all of us had always sort of like everyone does you know like, I suppose like you did you sort of the sort of romanticised um, uh, you, you know about moving to New York or being in New York City or experiencing that I mean the smell in that city is quite distinctive and unique but. It, for, for better or for worse, but it's amazing though. Just the, you know, it's the, in Manhattan. It's just something else. It's uh, uh, you know, the, you know, the plumes of smoke came out of the the sidewalk or whatever in the middle of the road or whatever. All that, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and even and back then, especially too. I get you know, I, I, you had all those little um, sort of Korean stores, which seem to be mostly gone now. All of that is kind of gone. A lot of those little sort of mini market stores. The bodegas are still around. Um, maybe they're not as Korean as mm. they used to be. It's a lot of uh, Latin American people yeah. primarily, but that's still a big part. Less so in Manhattan. Yeah. You know, I live in yeah. Queens, and the outer boroughs are still very much a fixture yeah. on on every. So block. that was all stuff that I was aware of through you know watching things like Midnight Cowboy or whatever. You know that is that that vision of New York. Then I mean, it's probably fairly accurate as well because what well, you know. New York in the 60s, city in the 60s. And I, I do remember Giuliani cleaning it all up or, you know, trying to clean it up. Uh, and it was amazing. It was a, it was a great, I mean, it still is a great city, you know. You, but like I so say, you probably do have to move out to Queens and other places to, you know, to experience that because a lot of the Manhattan and down and so, the gentrification there is pretty crazy, you know, unrecognizable, really. It's funny because I like I completely understand and I can relate to what you're saying about Midnight Cowboy, but also Midnight Cowboy is such a miserable, grimy movie. I mean, you know, Dustin Hoffman's character is dying of consumption uh, yeah, or yeah. something the entire time. It's funny to romanticize that kind uh, yeah, of film. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It's. it's I, I, I don't know. It's you know. Just I, I guess it's. You think what was happening? I mean, you think of actually. You're talking about it being a bit grimy and a bit grim. I think the Velvet Underground, their aesthetic. I mean, Lou Reed's you know vision of the world at that time is pretty. It's pretty grimy and grim, you know. Uh, it would be. I mean, it would have been a, a, a tough city to be poor in, particularly. I mean, it's never. You know, it's never a good time to be poor in a big city, but you know. I think it would have been extra tough then, you know. But it, but it, like I say, it was an amazing experience for us to be there for the first time, you know, to cross into, you know, and we, we didn't have a lot of money at all. We stayed on the floor, office floor at Matador. We used the the building's um, sort of washroom, you know, so the communal washroom for all the different offices that were people that were working there. That was basically our hotel bathroom, you know. Whatever we'd wake up, we'd wake, be sleeping on. We were in sleeping bag, bags on the floor in the Matador office. We'd wake up, they'd go through, and you know, do what we had to do in the communal washroom for the whole building, and that's how we stayed for the first few days and of our, our time in, in New York City. It's right down in at the corner of Houston and Broadway, uh, where where their office was at the time. I don't know where they are now. I, I would imagine they're not there anymore. But but that's not far from CBGB's. That's only a few blocks. Yeah, it was pretty good. You could walk over, you know. So that was that was pretty pretty handy. But it, yeah, it was a really exciting time, you know. Um, uh, and and like, like so we we had. Uh, but it's funny because you know Joe Pernice is a good friend of mine, and he and, and the way that I I think I'm probably uh, I don't know, what is the word for it is an American file or whatever. I mean, I really like U.S. culture. I always have, you know. And, in terms of, uh, Joe loves British culture, you know. He loves that. He finds that, that something. He finds romantic thinking about you know what's going on here and being in London and all of that kind of stuff. So, I guess it's, it's something that's exotic, isn't it? You know. 
something about that. Um, I mean, I've read Paul Oster's books as well. So, you know, I think walking around Manhattan and thinking about him. And uh, But uh, yeah, I mean, amazing, you know, really, really good times. It is a beautiful cultural exchange, like, especially in rock music, the way that that seemed to keep going back and forth. For sure, yeah, definitely. There's no doubt about it, yeah. I mean, you think the Who and all that kind of thing, but they're playing American instruments and amps. Oh, actually, Vox amps, so, the, you know, whatever. But, you know, yeah, there's a mixture of both. Uh, but we tend to use American guitars. I think all our guitars are probably, uh, yeah, they are. Yeah, Gibsons and uh, Fenders, you know. Uh, Leo Fender famously couldn't play the guitar. I don't know if you, you know that, but he was not a guitar player, uh, which I think I think, I think it's incredible that he couldn't play the guitar. I had the pleasure of interviewing Les Paul shortly before oh, he died. yeah, wow. And he was an incredible guitar player, and he had a similar issue as Django Reinhardt, where he, you know, he had... Uh, he had lost uh, movement in one of his hands and, and had to reinvent the way he played because wow. of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's an amazing person too. You know, he kind of, one of the inventors of multi-track, the inventor, I think, of multi-track recording. And, you know, actually, so Raymond from the band that saw Les Paul play in New York way, way back. Uh, one of the first times we went there. There was a place called Starlight. Um, he used to have a residency there. Yeah. And it was this thing of, you know, I think about this a lot with regard to a lot of musicians where we take people for granted when they're around. Yeah. Les, Les Paul was playing like every week yeah. and there weren't a ton of people there. And obviously now, now that he's been gone for a while, people would, you know, give their right arm. Yeah, to no, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I agree with you totally. It's funny, actually, because recently uh, I went to see Elton John play recently. I, I wouldn't say I've ever been a big Elton John fan. Uh, I mean, nothing against him at all, but I just wasn't a person that was really, really into Elton John. But about a month ago, a friend, Anne-Marie, she said to me, I've got tickets to see Elton John uh, in Glasgow tomorrow. Would you like to go? And I was thinking, uh, uh, and then I was thinking, what the fuck am I doing? Of course, yeah, I'll see you there. Uh, and it was amazing. And actually, we uh, we discussed, so he played Glastonbury a few nights later, which is supposedly his last ever live show. But the Glasgow show, he said, he said, look, this is the last um, show of my own that I'm ever doing. And you think, that is amazing. This is his last bit of job. And it was a great show, actually. Um, it was really good. I was really impressed. His singing was great. And one thing I really liked is that he wasn't, well, loads of bands that used in-ear monitors, but Elton didn't. He had like a couple of old school monitors around his, uh, you know, so that, 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 was, that was great. But, um, but yeah, it's really always worth seeing a, a, a great, a, or a, a big artist or, you know, to, to be that successful, you must have something about you, right? And, and I am a huge Elton John fan, and I saw him. I, I also got an invite to see him. I, I lucked into very good tickets. So sitting directly behind Michael Stipe at Madison Square Garden, wow, yes. and it was absolutely incredible. And and I think that it's one of those moments where even if you're not a big fan, being there. Maybe suddenly it all kind of makes sense. Yeah, I, why he's revered the way he is. Yeah, I thought it was amazing actually, and like I, said, I, I do like him. I don't get me wrong. I'm just I'm just not an Uber fan, but I I, I I thought the show was incredible. I thought the band were great, and I loved that they were all looking at each other, you know. And it was I thought this is a proper band, you know. He's like a, he's a proper player, you know. He's a, he's into the band thing, and the you know. And I, I guess a lot of the guys in the band have been with him for a long, long time. But it was great. It was really impressive. I really enjoyed it. You know? Knowing what I know about him, that's a situation where you really have to love playing with him because I don't think he is a particularly easy person to be in a band with. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know that. But yeah, yeah. But they seem to have. They did seem to have good uh, on stage, you know, interaction. So you know, something. You know, the reason why I sort of made reference to this when we were talking about you know touring, like packing yourself into the back of of a van. It strikes me that not only has Teenage Fan Club been around contiguously for a really long time, but that it's like more or less the same core group of guys, the yeah. same three or four guys. You have to like each other. You have to enjoy spending yeah. time with each other. No, I think that's always been a big part of our thing. I think if we didn't uh, enjoy each other's company, um, that's not to say that we have, we don't really hang out outside of the band, you know. We we're, but we're we're all in good terms. We've never been a band that uh, that uh, like um, enjoy sort of conflict or tension in the studio. It's not the way we operate. We would I think that wouldn't uh, work well for us at all. Some people like that. Some people like to you know have tension and you know conflict. And but no, we we like the, I think our our relationship is in terms of the group of people is about. 
you know, there's never any drama. Uh, you know, there's no uh, confrontation at all, really. It's we try to to just work together. You know, uh, it's not our style, really. You know, but, to, but you know, there's there aren't any personalities like that in the band. Most people are pretty. Well, everyone is easygoing, so that's uh, that's how we've always been. It's just the dynamic that we have as a group of individuals. Other people have different dynamics, but I, I really I couldn't. I, I would not find it conducive to. Being uh, uh, productive, if, I w- if there were if there was tension like that in the band, I don't, I wouldn't enjoy that at all. Even bringing Francis back after he played with you for what, like a year mm. in the late eighties, him coming back decades later yeah. is pretty wild. Was he was he just was he just in your orbit the entire time? He kind of was, yeah. I mean, he. Uh, so when we made the first record, Francis was uh, decided to go to university. Fair enough, you know. He thought, listen, guys, I, I'm going to go to uni you took a really long shot bet being in a rock yeah band. yeah exactly so he thought i'll do it. I'll, I'll you know i'll uh I'll, I'll go uni and whatever so he opened off and did that then uh along came brendan and we worked with him for a while and then paul quinn joined the band after brendan and we worked with paul for a few albums and then paul left uh and then francis in the in the interim period had been playing with bmx bandits and making records that started a label his own label, putting out Laura Cantrell's records uh, on his Shoeshine mm. label, so he, he knows Laura, and he'd been doing that. So um, when we came to look for someone to, you know, play drums on our next record, we thought, well, why don't we ask Francis? I mean, he knows, you know, he knows everyone, and and he sort of knows the ropes, and he just came back in, and uh, you know, it's funny because that well, he's probably been back in the band for twenty years or something like that, you know. That's fun, yeah, and he's still like the new guy, yeah, in a way. Back, yeah. Well, Dave McGowan's the new guy. He was the new guy, Dave, um, and Dave, but Dave, Dave, Dave's been with us for fifteen years or something. We'll now get Eros Childs with us, who plays with us now, and Eros has been in for five years now, I think. So. Time, time moves quickly in bands, you know? It is an interesting thing, and I've noticed this, like, the way that we talk about bands, but also this just applies to life in, in general, but those those early years in the bands, those first few records are off it. I mean, for obvious reasons, they're so important that there's just a different sense of time when you get older. Yeah, there is. I mean, if you look at the trajectory of most bands, and we are not dissimilar to this, is that you start out making albums fairly frequently, so... I think we had an album out every year and a half for the first three or four records. Then that becomes two and a half, three years, and eventually there are, there's five years between albums. So it's it, there's there's just something inevitable in that you you just seem to you know you have this initial trajectory and then it just seems to slow the tail off or whatever. But we're trying to turn, change that because we the older we get, you know, the closer we get to the end of our lives or whatever. Um, not to be melodramatic, but but it's a fact. Is that um, we we we're kind of thinking why why are we why are we dicking about why we should just be making LPs or touring so that's what we're trying to do now we're going to you know we've got this album coming out in October September October um, and we plan to try and get another one out two years later if we can get an album out every two years that would be ideal and then the uh, you know in between that we can tour the record um, but we, you know our kind of mindset now is that why don't we just try and do that because what else are we going to do this is what we do. Uh, so we should uh, get proactive. Not only that, but like, but obviously no one lives forever. But even before that point, there's a certain point where your body can't be on tour for a hundred dates a year. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the other thing about this too is like, there's no reason. That, I mean, you know, you're all people can be creative at any age. You know, you can keep writing. You know, you know, I guess um, you know, uh, authors and, and, and you know, people will be still be writing books well into old age or whatever. You know, there's no reason you can't write music. Uh, you know, um, until you you know into your later years or whatever. I guess it's about finding things to write about. You know, um, um, but there's always something to write about. You know, we all you know have, have different experiences in life and things change and. Uh, so uh, and mostly for us though it's it's a lot of fun we love still love making records it's really as exciting uh, to get that test pressing in your hand as it was the first time wow there it is or get that finished vinyl there's the finished record wow we made that amazing you know uh, it's you know so um, so but yeah we're just going to try and keep working as much as we can I always think Yula Tengo have been really great at that they'll make an album they'll go on tour they'll make another album you know I, I and they're always good somehow. Yeah, they're really good. Because, well, I think because they, they love it. You know, they're, they're, well, they are. They're great. They're really talented people, right? But 
but they enjoy it. You know, there's, you know, they they, they enjoy it, and it's part. Of, it is who they are. You know, um, as individual people, so, you know, Ira, George, and James. That's the part of them is the band, and you know, um, and um, but yeah, I mean, so that I, they, as a template. I think how they have done it is really good, you know? I think you use the word melodramatic, but it's interesting because, you know, I've read some of the things that you've said about this record, and I can't, I don't like, I don't like doing this. I don't like talking about song titles or album titles, but I have to ask you whether the phrase nothing lasts forever, does that have a positive or negative implication? I think, uh, um, it, well, I guess a band calling an LP nothing lasts forever. The inference from that would be, "Oh, this must be the last record." But that's not not what we mean by it at all. It's we kind of we're talking about it. You know, so that's actually a lyric in uh, in a song from the last LP. But I think Raymond came up with the or suggested the title. We got chatting about it, uh, um, and I kind of. <laughs> Started to get a, a bit metaphysical about it, and we were kind of you know, nothing does nothing lasts forever, you know, nothing literally, you know, like the the vinyl won't last forever, none of us will last, nothing lasts forever, but it's fine, you know, it's okay, it's just a statement of fact, you know. Um, but we also like the idea of uh, we've also thought about the, you know the, here, here we are all this time later. And after making the first record, we kind of thought, okay, well, it'd be great if we can make another one, but who knows what's going to happen? Maybe we won't. So, but but here we are, you know, whatever, how many albums, so many albums later that I can't remember how many it is that we're still making records. So, um, so I, I guess, you know, it's definitely, it's not, it's got nothing to do with us not planning to make another record because we fully plan to make one. But we 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 just like the the idea of of a, you know, we, let's say, and it, it's a kind of ridiculous thing. You have to, of course, you have to come up with an album title. You have to come up with a a, a name that to you know like for for the, the the body of songs, the group of songs, and so um. So yeah, there's there's nothing too deep in it at all, but we we just kind of thought it sounded funny. And and also, I guess, yeah, you can take it completely literally that nothing less than the computer. There's all the stuff that we're using to record this. That's going to be gone as well. And that's all fine. It's, it's all good. You know, it's all okay. That's a good attitude. It takes people, not everybody arrives at that. It's it's nice when you do uh, come to terms with that fact and, and not only understand it, but accept it. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, we've got a thing too. We always think that I mean, bands de- very often take themselves far too seriously. You think about like um, as teenage fan club. How many people are even aware of us? Like in terms of the global population, infinitesimally small. You know, we we can kind of generally you know meaningless to you know and you know unknown to the vast majority of people on this planet. That we're cool with that. That's absolutely fine because of course that's just the way it is. It's okay, you know. But um, you know. I, you know, I don't even know where I was going with that, but but it's a thing that we we, we we talk about. That's interesting, because we were talking about trajectory earlier, and the band has had an interesting trajectory in terms of, I want to say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to say it was bandwagon S. I want to say it was the third LP that really put the band on the map. And then the, I, I guess, from, from sort of a critical and maybe sales standpoint, the follow-up less so oh yeah definitely tailed off from there yeah that was the but you but then you kind of got you you got that mojo back on the following one sure yeah yeah we we kind of leveled up we've sort of leveled we've we've i mean and we do fine you know we have a fan base we've been really lucky that people have continued to buy the albums um but yeah that was i guess when we made the bandwagon s records there were high hopes uh, at geffen at dgc that um that this we were going to do really well with it but um, I, I mean, that was all about surreal to us. We had no expectation at all. We w- were just happy to make the record, um, uh, and so of course that didn't happen. We were we didn't become global superstars, but that, that's all fine. Alexa, we had no expectation of that at all, so we weren't disappointed because we didn't expect anything. We were just happy to be out making music, and uh, 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 you know, yeah. I guess that to, to us that's the an achievement in a way that we're still around doing it. But um, 
there's a good chance that if you had had that success, that you wouldn't be. Most of the bands that hit that plateau break up pretty quickly. Yeah, they, they do. I mean, you know, we tour, I remember we toured with Nirvana um, on the European leg of the Nevermind tour, and it was an amazing phenomenon to be a witness to, and, and maybe and a peripheral part of it. It was a lot of fun, and they're great guys, you know, and, uh, you know. Uh, they they were great guys and Dave Grohl and Chris are still great guys. Unfortunately, Kurt is no longer around. But um, I, I I remember that time witnessing that phenomenon and seeing it just mushroom and become this massive thing. I, I, I and also seeing how little they enjoyed that they weren't really enjoying the you know the you know. I think especially Kurt um, wasn't... I feel like Dave probably came to terms with that pretty quickly. I think Dave... Because I think people, you know, um, when you think about Dave Grohl, and he, he is a great guy. Dave Grohl is a lovely guy. We, we, we uh, did some shows with him fairly recently. Dave asked us to come and play some shows with him, and uh, which was really nice. But um, he's kind of still the same guy he was then. He's really... And that, like, what you see is what you get with Dave Grohl. He's like that. You know, that persona is him, you know. That public persona is the private one as well. Um, but what I think is amazing about what he's done is that, you know, it wasn't a given that he would come out of Nirvana and become a big star. You know, he did all that himself. All of that is his own work, you know. Um, uh, it's kind of... The, the the Nirvana part of it is really tiny, you know, because he was the drummer, and that 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 never happens yeah. to the drummer. Yeah, but big bands break up, and it's very, you know, there's, it's not given that the, the people who leave, you know, the people from that band will go on to have success. And he's done amazingly well, you know, and he deserves all the successes. He's, he works hard, he's a, you know, um, uh, but. Um, but yeah, so but at the time though it was a different experience for him. I think I, th- I don't think they were really ready for it, you know, and uh, and didn't enjoy it because you sort of lose something going to those big stadiums, you know. Um, there's and I, you know, not that we get to play them very often, but I still much prefer club shows. They're always the most exciting because you're kind of part of it. Then the, you know, the, you're you're connected to the audience in a way that you're not at a big show, you know. Um, uh, there's this kind. Well, there's uh, the pit. And then there's just the the vast sea of faces, and you, you you lose any sense of intimacy. But when you're in a club, you can see the sweat dripping off people's you know whatever foreheads. But I'm glad we're talking about Nirvana because I, I guess they were your label mates at the time. Yeah, yeah, they were. Yeah, yeah. A very famous part of the teenage fan club lore is bandwagon esque beating out Nevermind and in, in that spin poll. Yeah, it's interesting. I think about my life a lot in terms of these sorts of these crossroads, you know, these, these very, these moments where something could have gone in, in one direction or another. Um, obviously the two bands took, um, very different trajectories and Nirvana's ended very, unfortunately, you know, how much of this sort of positive view that you have of your ultimate outcome is, is the kind of thing that comes with age you know, I, I, I'm I'm trying to in my own life. I'm trying to get better at being happy for people and not feeling this just intense sense of jealousy when other people succeed. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's kind of nothing you can do about what what's going to happen, how your record's going to be received, and how people, actual people, are going to what they're going to think of it. I remember the spin. Uh, we, we you know we got the spin album of the year, um, but the reviews editor at that time at Spin Magazine was a guy called Stephen Daly. Who was the drummer in Orange Juice from Glasgow? So I don't know if don't know if Steve, Stephen had some kind of influence on that. You Scottish people, stick yeah, together. yeah. He assures me he, he didn't. But no, um, you know, it's you know, it's like, and we, I think we, like, so we've always felt happy that we've been able to make albums. We we didn't have any expectation. We, I mean, I think at the time when DGC thought that we were going to be really big, I, I, we had no, we 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 just didn't think that was going to be possible. Um, I, I don't know. I just maybe the aesthetic of the music or whatever. Just what I, I, we just couldn't see that being, you know, really big, really big. You know, I, I, you know, Nirvana had a kind of rock thing going on. They could cross over to to that audience in a way. You know, the sort of big power chords, um, uh, and we didn't have anything like that. I suppose it was. But I mean, like I say, there's no point in analysing it. You just there's no you, who can who can say what's going to become popular. Some things do, and other things don't, and it's difficult to to you know to say what wh- which one will be popular. Um, there are two different things. 
Um, but like so we were, we've been very lucky that we're still touring, and we can. We were, I mean, we're go, going to Japan next year and Australia, and and yeah, like I said, to be able to do that thirty years after we made our first record, it's amazing, really incredible. And we'll play clubs, and it'll, the shows will be great. We can make that work, you know, and that will, um, you know, hopefully um, make enough money to, you know, uh, make another album out of all the touring that we're doing, and we'll continue the. You know, do it, you know the sort of uh, uh, trajectory. When something like thirteen, when an album like thirteen comes along and it doesn't have, I'm assuming doesn't have the reception that that, that you were hoping for. Certainly, like not not the kind that the albums before or after had. Is there any? Are there any conversations about? You know, is it is does it does it make sense to keep to keep going? Were there ever any moments in your very long history when it felt like? Teenage fan club might not continue to be a thing. No, I, I, not at all. Because I think we only ever wanted to make records. That was, uh, you know, we didn't want to be. Uh, we, we would like a lot of people to buy the records and like our music. Of course, you would. That's why you, in some ways, you make music. But, but just the the, the, the fact of making them was the most important thing to us. And like I said, we did okay. Even with the, you know, with thirteen, with the album. Uh, looking back on it, it, was actually fairly well received. We've been pretty lucky in terms of reviews over the years. You know. Uh, you know, but we st- it still allowed us to go and tour the world, you know, and uh, it still allowed us to make another album and do another deal. Um, so, uh, you know, we've always kind of been very lucky, and that we, you know, we are, you know, we so we were in DGC in the US creation records here. That deal came to an end, um, and in the US we moved to merge because we had a, a previous relationship with them as individuals and as a band with the. Uh, <clears throat> super chunk folk, um, and then here we, you know, we uh, sort of went solo in a way. Started putting our own records out. Um, uh, hooked up with a company called Republic of Music, who do all the kind of um, background work for us. So, like, see, we're just happy to still be able to make records, and it's still exciting. You know, putting together the artwork and talking about it and arranging tours. It's all a lot of fun. So, but I don't think we ever thought. Hey, look, we're you know we're not you know and you know that I think with bands it is peaks and troughs. You'll have periods where you'll be you know you'll you'll go to tour and there'll be a lot of people there, and then you'll go to tour a couple of years later. Uh, there won't be quite so many there, but it's, that's just how it works. And if you're happy to um, um, accept that, then it's fine. You know, we but like so we we've got no expectation of how this album will be received. But we we'll do our best to make a good record, you know. And we'll we'll definitely make sure that we're happy with it before we put it out, you know. But how other people, you know, what they think of it, then it's not up to us at all. We just, you know, um, we just have to wait and see what people say. But so far, so good. It's again mostly been the same core group of guys, which is really impressive. But what happens, you know, what happens in the case of of Gerard leaving the band for? Example. I mean, what what does that do to the band's future? Uh, well, you know, we um, I, I didn't really do any anything in terms of the band's future. We we had a, kind of a bit of a dis- disagreement about um, some live shows. I mean, a long time. It's five years ago since uh, since Jerry has been in the band. But uh, so uh, he decided to he, he would leave the band. Um, but we thought, well, we're just going to keep making music. I mean, the band the, the, when the band started, there, there was me and Raymond sitting in his little flat in Glasgow with a sort of port studio or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, and so what you do is you just accept a new dynamic and you move on. Dave, who'd been playing keyboards um, and guitar with the band, is primarily a bass player. He plays bass, bass with Bell and Sebastian. Um, moved on to bass. We thought, okay, well, let's just go out and, you know, keep working and make another record. Um, it's only a band. You know, people have left before and things have changed yeah. and it's all been okay. And and, and this will be fine. It'll be what it is. You know, it'll be different, but that's okay. You know, the ba- I mean, it was, so it was great that when Jerry was in the band, it was great. And, uh, you know, I'd look to my left and there would be Jerry and would be, and that was all good. And now Dave's there, and Eros is playing keyboards. I still, I still enjoy it. It's still great. It's just, it's just different, you know. I partially ask because um, I don't remember if it was you or Raymond in the again in the press material. Every single band that's been 
that I've talked to that's had any longevity has described this almost, um, again, I'll get metaphysical now, this, this, this like psychic connection that people have when they get into the studio of just understanding in your case, what the guy coming in, you know, with the song is, is trying to do um, versus giving like very strict instructions, which maybe was the dynamic in the early days. Obviously every single in the few on those few occasions when new people have come and gone, that does change things. It changes the chemistry somewhat. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, but you have to kind of embrace that and just accept it. But what we, what that, that you that we, I think it was I, I said the what you just said there um, about the dynamic in the studio. So when I speaking personally, when I was younger, I would definitely try and dictate things. Like I, you know, you, have, you would have a, an idea for a song, and you would think, okay, well, the bass should maybe do something like this, and another guitar could play this part, and you would try and direct people. I mean, even down to drum fills, you could maybe play a, this drum fill at this point in the song. And I don't do that at all now um, uh, because um, I'm, the people I'm working with are really talented um, and have really good ideas and I'm not that precious about it. You know, I can write the song. Okay, I've written the song. There's the song. There are the lyrics and here are the chords. And this is a rough arrangement. But what we could, well, let's start playing it together. So what we do is, and we both do this, myself and Raymond, we'll come into the studio. We don't do any pre-production or rehearsals or any of that stuff. We go into the studio. We set up in the room together. And I, so if it was me, I would come in and say, okay, here's the song, there's the verse, there's the chorus, and we'll just start playing it over and over, and Dave will work out a bass part, Francis works out drums, Eros works out keyboards, and Raymond does a guitar thing, and then between us, we'll, after a couple of hours, we'll have something, and then we'll get some takes of that, and that's it. And that, that's how we do it now. Um, and... I really enjoy working that way because it can take the song in a different direction. You still have the melody. The melody's still there. You know, you're just kind of... What you're doing is working on an arrangement of a melody um, and you can change the structure. But people come up, always come in with really interesting ideas and um, and also kind of homogenises everything and brings it all together uh, and across the whole album because we're all contributing to the writing in a way, you know. Um, there'll be the person who will come up with the melody and the, whatever the chords, but the everyone else is contributing something. So, um, so, but yeah, that's just the way we do it now. There's no magic in a way. Which, um, nobody thinks they're Brian Wilson, and they have to kind of, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that. Some people do that, and it's you know, and the results can be incredible. So, but it's but it, again, it didn't end great for Brian Wilson. No, it didn't at all. No, no, just yeah. But that so so yeah, exactly. Um, but that that's our dynamic. But every group is a different dynamic, you know. Um, and uh, you know, you have to to get you know uh, to get your to the end of the process of making the record. You just have to adapt and work um, in the you know. Uh, well, with us in the, with the group of people that are there in that room, that's how we do it. We'll all be in the same room. We don't baffle things off, you know. We'll you know we'll we'll not have people in different rooms. We're all in the same room. And we're looking at each other, and that that's how we do it. Am I wrong in thinking that there's a sense in which foreign land came together in a very similar way as the concept? Yeah, it did actually. It was written in the studio, so we'd been and actually because the the studio when you're in the studio, it's also conducive to writing. It really is because you're kind of in that, you know. Um, but I think we'd been recording. We'd been recording for a couple of days, and I just sat one afternoon or whatever, playing, come up with a riff, and I thought, okay, uh, I could maybe make a song out of that, you know. And then, so maybe we'll try that tomorrow morning. So we went in the next day to the studio, uh, uh, into the room, and I said, okay, I've got this idea. And I think it's called Foreign Land, and I've got some fragments of lyrics, and then it quickly came together. So, um, so yeah, so that wouldn't that song wouldn't have existed without us being in the studio. I didn't sit and write that at home before we were in there, you know. Um, I, you know, and we tend to we we tend to not go in with finished material, finished songs when we get into the studio. So, which can you know can be slightly nerve wracking, and there's always a, a danger that you, you you won't get it done. We always have. You know, but there's there is a slight element of danger, and that you may not be able to complete everything. But we can like that. You know, we again we find that conducive to producing good work. An interesting part of the alchemy, and again, this is something that I hear from a lot of bands, is the once you've got this group of songs together, 
all of a sudden like does, doesn't occur to you at all during the writing process generally but once once you once they're all juxtaposed up against each other you start to pick out the themes that you are sort of subconsciously writing and for me the title of the album is interesting not you know i i know I didn't think at all that there was any possibility the band was breaking up anytime soon, especially again, having heard you talk, you know, previously, uh, you're obviously very happy with uh, what you do and the the band continues to produce really great records. But to me, there's something in nothing lasts forever that touches on some of the unexpected themes of the record. And I'm going to quote you at yourself and I keep pulling from the press releases, which I don't do, but this is probably a testament to how good our friend Caroline is at her job, that it was full of a lot of these jabs. You're talking about light. You're talking about light as one is a metaphor for hope, which obviously, you know, light breaking through the clouds, we all understand that. And then there's a turn in the sentence where you say, as an ultimate destination further down the road. And to me, that speaks to this theme of mortality that is very present on this album yeah well you know that you know as you get older that becomes a bigger thing in your life you know you do get closer to the end of your life but it's like a we're i guess we're just happy to talk about it some people don't like to talk about it some people like to just you know but um but i suppose inevitably too if you're writing music about to me right from our life experience you know myself and raymond that you know, it's the, we don't write sort of little narrative songs or whatever, and you know, you know, it's the, you know, in the way that the concept is maybe just a little story that I made up or whatever, you know, and um, but we we tend to um, write about the world, our life, our place in it, and how we experience it or, or whatever, um, and so inevitably, inevitably, you're kind of you know, I think I mentioned in the press release, or maybe the UK one, but you know, you find yourself get putting on the black suit and tie more often than the quote was pulling the black suit out of the cupboard. Yeah, you know, and that's just a fact that that happens a bit more often than uh, than it did when you know you're in your twenties or your thirties. So, um, so that that's why you might want to explore the you know the mortality and you know the world and your place in it and. Uh, and it's some uh, because it's something you think about a bit more often than you did when you were younger because it's getting closer. I implicitly understand that, but I also very much understand why people don't like talking about it. I I certainly don't, don't like talking. No, about I get it. it too. It's funny, and there's some ideas because you know my my dad uh, he's going to be ninety fairly soon, and you kind of he would look at me and think, "What the fuck are you talking about?" You know, uh, you know, you're kind of you're only fifty seven. But, you know, it's like, it's just all relative, isn't it? You know, because, you know. I was talking to somebody the other day and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm so old. And I was like, oh, this person is 20 years older than me. You shouldn't say that to somebody. <laughs> it doesn't make them feel great about themselves. Yeah, it's just a funny thing. You always you always have that. Everyone feels old. You feel People feel old when they're 17, you know. Um, it's just, I guess that's part of life. And, you know, and people actually probably even thinking about mortality when they're young. You just don't do it as often, and you just you can you get a kick it in the long grass because you don't have to think about it. Then well, I'll be fine. I'm probably going to be okay for the next few years, so I wouldn't think about that too much. But um, but as you go older, it's something you think about more. Again, nothing lasts forever. I think it's a good way to to look at some of these ideas. It's not intended to be in any way morbid at all. It's you know. Um, but yeah, you just you know, like nothing does last forever. It's, it's, we all kind of have to come to terms with the the inevitability of uh, what will happen. But here's the thing: I think you know we 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 are positive people too. I mean, most you know, I've been out fixing up my garden. I don't want to get all chunky garden being there here. But you know, if you <laughs> you've been outside of your house, so you won't. Fall prey to that. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Wasn't he, wasn't he like bo- he was like born in the house? It's, right? it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing book. And but the the, the movie is great. That yeah, yeah. The, the the last scene in the in the movie where he just walks out onto the the water is totally built onto the lake. It's really amazing. Um, I remember the first time I watched that, and then I, I immediately read his book and, and all of the other books. But I've just I don't know why that isn't something that has cultural purchase. Yeah, in the way other films do, it seems to be forgotten. Which is yeah, tragic. it does. It's kind of lost, isn't it, a little bit? But um, maybe because it's maybe people people maybe found it a little hard to relate to. Or a lot of people might find it hard to relate to because it's it's a bit strange, you know, the whole Chauncey Gardner thing, and you know, and and Peter Sellers, like doing a very 
wonderful dramatic role, but I, I assume that that probably threw some people off. At the yeah, time. definitely. They're looking for something that's a bit funnier, and it is funny, you know. But it's um, but it's it's very dark as well, you know. Um, but yeah, great great movie. But again, I suppose again that's a, that, that's talking about death and life and whatever, you know. Uh, yeah, I get. Like we just try to write about the world and how we experience it, and that you know, thoughts of mortality will sort of certainly be in your head more often than they were when you were younger. These things that we're talking about right now, you know, mortality, death. Obviously, throughout your career, knowing what I know about you, you've used music as a form of, to a certain extent, catharsis, but also as a way of processing. Yeah, some of these ideas, you know, grief obviously is a big one here. In writing this album and in whether consciously or unconsciously touching on these topics, did, did it impact your view and and the way you you process some of these ideas? I think so because you, you you know there's a bit of self-analysis going on, you know, um if I wasn't writing the songs I probably wouldn't be thinking about the mortality and you know in the way that I was or you know um you know you know with the on our last album we made our last album I, I my my I'd split up with my wife and a lot of the songs um, on that record were about uh, you know that and me coming to terms with that I mean I, I'm happy to it's all good now we have a great relationship now and it's all in the past and I've kind of processed it but making the record helped me do that you know me you know uh, allowed me to Just go through how I was feeling and and put it and kind of put it into words and I, I you know and I suppose in a very public way through the you know the, the lyrics on that record um, and so this one this the lyrics in this record are about me and how I, you know post that I mean I'm in this I'm in a new home I'm I mean I'm kind of in a new phase of my life and so I you know I'm feeling fairly positive actually generally you know I'm about things you know. Um, uh, so you know, making these the records and making music has given me an opportunity to process these things. It's kind of like personal therapy, you know. I, you know, uh, it's a lot cheaper than uh, going to a therapist. Um, but I probably wouldn't be thinking about mortality or you know in the same way if I hadn't been making the record. I, mean, I think most most of us in life kind of just you know trundle along you know we have a kind of a routine that we go through which is good I kind of I, I kind of like a bit of routine myself you know but most of the time we're not really thinking about down the line we're just kind of living each day as it comes you know which is pretty good it's a nice way to live life but sometimes you do have to kind of think about what's you know what's in front of you uh, um, but yeah most of, most of the time I don't either most of the time you know I'm, I'm just getting on with my life buying mulch and that kind of thing and uh, you know and compost and uh, that's my new thing I'm, uh, I've gone all Chauncey Gardner <laughs> 